It's great to see you all here. Wasn't that awesome worship and just to be able to focus on the Lord, yeah. That's one of the heritages we have as the vineyard. Um, at, at the beginning of the vineyard, the music was contemporary worship music, but it was focused on God himself. And a lot of the music in those days that was contemporary music was focused on more, um, you know, things that, um, that we're going to do. And, and uh, John Wimber, the, who started the vineyard, called it warrior music, which actually I kind of like the warrior music too, don't you? But, um, but it, it is when we focus on him and we're singing to him. In effect, we're praying. We are praying as a group when we're singing to him and we're singing the same words to him. So it's, it's just a powerful thing that blesses the Lord's heart. But today, we're going to start a new series of messages on the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, it's interesting because Micah was not part of the preparation of this series. Don't think he was in any, any of the discussions. But the main theme of this and the title we're going to give the series is Following the King. Because, yeah, isn't that good? Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience that was facing difficulty, some persecutions, questions. They were spread throughout the Mediterranean world by the time Matthew was written, uh, some 40 years after, after uh, the, the ascension of Jesus, maybe 50, in the, somewhere in the 70s up to 80 AD. And, uh, and so there were believers all throughout the Mediterranean world. And many, many of them were Jewish believers that came to, to the conclusion that Jesus really was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the king. But they were also facing hardship. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written. Hebrews was written before the Gospel of Matthew. And it was written to assure the Jewish believers that Jesus really was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament story. And the writer of Hebrews took the approach, <clears throat> a more technical approach, of outlining all of the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and all of the Levitical priesthood things and the temple and all of that, and showing that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of all of that, that all of those Old Testament symbols pointed to Jesus as Messiah and King, because some of the, some of the Hebrew believers we're thinking about turning back to Judaism and thinking, well, if we just go back to Judaism, it'll be easier. Then you know, we won't lose our jobs. Our family won't reject us because they disagree with us and don't believe that Jesus is really the Messiah. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is he says, hey, look, there's nothing to go back to because that's all fulfilled through Christ. And so Jesus is the, he is the story. He is the culmination of that whole Old Testament story. And of course, then, not many years after Hebrews was written in A.D. 70, uh, the Romans had had enough of, of uh, Israel, enough of the Jews and their religion, and they invaded Israel, and they sacked Jerusalem, and actually literally destroyed the temple, taking it down a stone at a time, as Jesus had prophesied. And so, when Matthew's written, there literally is nothing to go back to. There are not going to be any, any more temple festivals. There aren't going to be any more Day of Atonement sacrifices at the temple. Not, none of that any longer because the temple's gone. So can you imagine being a first century Jew? You've accepted Jesus. You, you believe he's really the Messiah. But your family and friends are all trying to convince you that he's not. 
And they're, they're saying, wait a second. He was from Nazareth. Nazareth was in the, in the territory of the tribe of Zebulun. And it was the tribe of Judah that was the royal line. So he couldn't be the son of David. That was one of the terminologies they gave to the Messiah, son of David. King David was in the line of Judah. And so they, they would argue against it. Some of them would even say, as the Pharisees had said, you know, there was a moment when the Pharisees and Jesus were debating, and the Pharisees, um, they thought they were, gonna, they were just going to end the argument. They said to him, at least we weren't born of fornication. Now, what do you think they were thinking? They had heard rumors. The rumors had persisted that something funny happened around the birth of Jesus. And Mary claimed this, but nobody really knows if that's true or not. And so those rumors would have persisted throughout the whole Jewish community, throughout the Mediterranean world. And they'd be hearing that about Jesus as well. How could he be the Messiah when he was born out of wedlock? He was born uh, out of an act of fornication. And so they're facing this pressure and this difficulty. And so uh, Matthew writes this gospel, which became very quickly the most read of the New Testament books. It was the most read of all the gospels. It was the most quoted of all of the gospels. And, uh, and he really writes this to this audience of people who have been re receiving persecution and resistance. And now, even though they believed in Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, their hearts were still attached to Jerusalem. Their hearts were still attached to the temple. It would be kind of like, uh, maybe roughly, like if Washington, D.C. was wiped out or if uh, the Capitol building was torn down. It, it, it would, it, it would, but far more than that, because this was just not a national monument. This was the center of Judaism for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so uh, he starts off with a part of the Bible that many of us might think is kind of boring or, you know, why would anyone even want to put that in the Bible? And how could it possibly be interesting to read? Anybody want to guess what we're talking about? A genealogy. That's right. Genealogy. But I want you to think of it more like this. Well, let me ask. Has anybody here ever tied into Ancestry.com? Had your DNA tested? Really? Okay. All right. Just a few of us, I guess. But uh, this was the Ancestry.com of the day. Except it was far more than that. And in some cases, in the Old Testament, there, were, there was one time when they had come back from exile, and they were reestablishing the priesthood, and several who had served as priests when they were in exile in Babylon could not produce a genealogy to prove that they were really of the priestly line, and, and they, were, they, had, they, had to, they had to stop being priests because it enabled them to know where their background was. Now, this genealogy that we're going to read in a moment is more than just a history. It's more than just a collection of names. To the, to the Jews hearing this, it was a story. And it wasn't just individual stories. You know, I, I know some individual stories from my background. I know there, there was some great, great uncle that died in a sawmill accident out west, I know I have a, a probably a great, great, great aunt who rafted down the Allegheny River to save her children um, in, a, in a time of real turmoil. And, and a few bits and pieces of stories like that. But what's presented here is a cohesive story. And, and the intent of this, this, uh, uh, this bibliography 
not bibliography, genealogy, is to demonstrate that Jesus is part of the story of God. And the story of God starts in the book of Genesis. And it's very interesting. The first two words in the Greek language in the Gospel of Matthew are biblos genosios, which literally would be translated book of Genesis. That, that had to have captured the, at least the curiosity of any Jewish reader. And uh, it, it really would be translated the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And so they call it the book of the genealogy of Jesus. And so it starts off book of Genesis, and that's where the whole story really starts with God creating the world, creating mankind in his image. Loving man, being with man, but man falling away, turning away from God. And in turning away from God, man literally gave the keys to the family car to the enemy, Satan, and gave access to the world to God's enemy. And the story then from that point on is God's love for mankind and God's pursuit of man to bring man back into relationship with him. And a key moment in that whole storyline is where this, bio, where this um, uh, genealogy starts, and that's with the man Abraham. Abraham was a man who lived in Mesopotamia. God spoke to him, and he said, Abraham, I want you to get up and move. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'd be saying, okay, where? God said, just move. Well, I'll tell you on the way. Well, couldn't you maybe give me a hint so I know what I need to take with me? You know, should I, you know, what, what, where are we headed, God? He just says, just pick up and go. I'll take you there. And so Abraham believed what God told him. And, and Abraham picks up with his family, and they move, and they stay in, in one, one city for a few years, but then they eventually pick up and move all the way down to Palestine, which is where God was leading him originally. That's the beginning of the story. And Abraham was an amazing man. We're going to share a few things about him later. But the story then goes on from there. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, Abraham... At this point, his name was Abram, which means father. And interestingly, he was an old man and he was childless. And so God says, okay, Abram, I know you're, what, 70 years old, well beyond the time when you're going to have children, but I'm gonna, we're going to change your name right now. We're going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. So from father to father of many. And what did Abraham do? He accepted that. He believed God. God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it says, Abraham believed that. And it says more, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham was a fallen human being. He was a sinful, fallen human being and could not be counted righteous on his own. But because he believed God and believed the revelation God gave him, God was able to say, okay, Abraham, my son's going to die on the cross someday to take care of all your sin, and I'm going to reach into the future. I'm going to grab his righteousness, and I'm going to bring it back to today, and I'm declaring you righteous. You are righteous because you have believed in me. And so Abraham's this amazing man. The whole thing starts with him. But then you go through uh, the, 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 the whole... Um, 
the whole genealogy, and you see all of these other key people like David. David was a key person in the genealogy. That's why it starts off uh, in the very first verse talking about David and Abraham. In fact, let's look at that first verse. It starts, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, two key people, two iconic figures in the Old Testament history. David was the immediate ancestor that's referenced here, and then Abraham was the previous, the older one. And so Abraham, then you go through several generations, you come to David, then you go through several more generations, and you come to a key moment where the nation is carried off into captivity in Babylon, and then you come back to the return to Israel, and another series of, uh, of individuals born until Jesus himself comes. And so, this is all written to share the story of God. And, and not only to connect Jesus in the mind of the Jewish believers directly to Abraham, father of the nation, and to connect Jesus to David, the first righteous king, and David himself was promised by God that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever, forever and ever. And David's, the immediate promise was fulfilled in Solomon who became king. But the long, the, the for, forever part, Solomon died, you see. The forever part of this promise is fulfilled through the Messiah. And that's why the Jews in the first century, even you know, prior to Jesus' coming, referred to the Messiah as the son of David. Because he was going to fulfill not only the Abrahamic covenant of God to bless the nation in order to bless all nations, but also the Davidic covenant that David would have through the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, David would have one of his who would sit on the throne forever and forever. And so it launches Jesus. It launches him into his ministry as well as attaching him to the past and to to where he came from. Now, Winston Churchill made a statement that um, during World War II, about three years, a little bit over three years into the war for Britain, that um, they, you know, they had already fought the Battle of Britain, which was an air, air battle, and they had, uh, they had driven the Germans back. But now in North Africa, two of their uh, famous generals, Alexander and Montgomery, defeated Rommel, who was the, the top German tank commander. And they defeated him in a battle called El Alamein, which is also referred to as the Battle of Egypt. And so this was a big, big deal that they defeated Rommel. And Churchill wants to draw it into context for all of his people. And he knows that it wouldn't, it's not going to help if he says, well, we destroyed 5,000 of their tanks. And the battle went this way, and then it was close, but then we won. The, you know, the description of all of that was not what people needed to hear. They needed to see this whole thing in the context of a story. We need to recognize that, that story is so powerful. So Churchill stands up or didn't stand up, he probably over the radio. He said, this, this victory, he said, it's not the end. And then he said, it's not even the beginning of the end. But he said, perhaps it is the end of the beginning. And 
he was able to paint a picture for them of seeing a progress of what's happening. And here's where we are in that story. And so this genealogy paints a picture. Here's where we are in the story of God's redemption for mankind. Here's where we are in the story of, of the kingdom of God coming to earth, of God's kingdom being restored on the earth. And I would say at the end of this genealogy, we are at the end of the beginning. And Jesus launches us into chapter two. And chapter two is Jesus' ministry on this earth, right up to the time of his death, burial, and, and uh, resurrection. And then the next chapter begins on the day of Pentecost, when he pours out the Holy Spirit on us, the church. And you see, story is so important because th that we are able to see ourselves then as part of the whole story. Does that make sense? You are part of this story because we're, we're part of the fulfillment of what Jesus said when he said, wait in Jerusalem till the promise of the Father comes. Then you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, power will come on you when the Holy Spirit comes. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Blessed to be a blessing to the whole world. And for, for you and for me, we have to see ourselves in the context of the bigger picture. And, and I think in, in our culture and our background, we make things so individualistic. And it's so much about me and, well, what am I called to? What am I supposed to do? What's my life? Where's my life headed? And, and that's not bad, but you're only going to get those answers in the context of the big picture story. And seeing myself in context of the big picture story, when I see that, then many of these answers, they, they lose their intensity for one thing, but then they become clear as well. And just as a side note, the new leader of the vineyard, uh, Jay Pathak, I heard him say this. Uh, this was, I, I sent out to um, everyone on the email list in the church a couple of links to, uh, to his testimony. And in it, he said this. He said, people are always asking, what's my call? What's the call of God in my life? I'm confused. I don't know what it is. He said the answer he gives them is, he says, if you're confused and you don't know what God's call is on your life, find somebody who isn't confused. Find somebody who does know the call of God in their life and serve them. Find, hear that? Serve them. Serve their call. And along the way, you'll pick up what your call is. But it's seeing yourself as part of something bigger than just yourself is so crucial. And that, that's what this genealogy does for us. So he starts off the, those first verses, the, the record, um, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're going to read it here in just a moment, but I want to give you a few more thoughts on it before we do. So, um, well, here, now I want to do this. We're going to read the genealogy, okay? Aren't you excited to hear that? It takes about two and a half minutes, maybe three right now with, you know, with, with everyone in the room. But here's what I want you to do. W will you be involved with this with me? How, how like... Um, um, joyful do you feel this morning? Do you feel like, okay, let's hear more of that right there, all right? All right, so when I say the name Jesus, I want you to shout out King Jesus when I read his name, okay? When I read the name David, I want you to shout out King David. When I read Abraham, it's Father Abraham. Just stop with that. 
we're not gonna go into Father Abraham has many sons. You know that? You must know that already. We're just gonna stop with Father Abraham. And interestingly, there are several women in this genealogy. That tells us that it's more than just a historical technical document. That it's a document of story. Because at least two of those women were Gentiles. And what, what Matthew wants us to know, what God wants us to know is that he had the Gentiles on his heart and mind all along. Amen. Even included them in the Messianic line. And the people in this genealogy messed up big time. They did. I mean, I, I'm just going to, before we read, I'm going to tell you this. Abraham. Uh, Abraham believed God that was counted to him for righteousness, and he trusted God. And even, even when he was 90 years old, he believed he was going to have a baby. It's amazing. They had a baby. And do you know how we know he believed it? And, and they acted on their faith, okay? Let me just say that, okay? <laughs> they acted on their faith. It wasn't a virgin birth. But do you know his wife, Sarah, was a beautiful woman? And there was one time when they were uh, headed into Egypt, and uh, Abraham is afraid that the king of Egypt will kill him so he can take Sarah into his harem. And so he says, Sarah, you know, really, you're my half-sister. That's, she was a relation in some way like that. Let's just tell them that you're my sister. And so that's what they did. It was a lie. He, she was his wife. And then, and then God delivers them from that supernaturally. And then they're, they're going to meet this other king named Abimelech. And he does the same thing over again several years later. Very same thing. Tell her you're my sister. Because he hadn't learned enough to trust God to stay alive earlier, apparently. He trusted God enough to believe that he was going to have a nation that would bless all the nations of the world, and that he would have a child. But when it came down to this other thing, he just couldn't trust God for that. And, and so, man, um, how many of you wives would like to, like to um, have a husband who would let you go into a harem rather than die defending you? So that was Abraham. Yeah, he was the father of Isaac. Um, Isaac himself was just not a very good dad. He, um, he married, I think it was Rebecca, and um, Isaac had a favorite, and Rebecca had a favorite. Now, Isaac's name means laughter, and it was kind of like, okay, God's playing a joke on us. We're having a baby at the age of 100, and so let's name him Laughter. That's a great name, isn't it, Laughter? And, uh, but, but then when he had children... He had two boys, Jacob and Esau, and they were at each other's throats all the time, and, and Rebecca had a favorite, and Isaac had a favorite, and it caused all sorts of trouble in, in their home and in their family. So at the very least, you just look there and you say, well, okay, Isaac had some problems as a dad, but Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob means deceiver, and Jacob actually deceived Isaac into giving him the family inheritance, so to speak, the, the blessing, and through deception. And so Jacob gets this family blessing, and then he has to flee because he's afraid his brother Esau, who's a rough and tough guy, is going to kill him. And on the way, he has a dream. And so God gives to this deceiver who has just deceived his family and stolen from his brother, he gives him this incredible dream about angels ascending and descending from the earth to the heaven. And what he was showing him there was, this is the portal of heaven. This is where it's happening. 
When angels go on assignment, they go on assignment right through this space right here into the earth. And uh, later then, that portal becomes a person, Jesus, and ultimately it becomes a body of people, the church. And so you and I, as part of the church, are today the portal of heaven, which God gave to uh, Jacob, the deceiver, this incredible vision. Later in Jacob's life, he wrestles with God, has his wrestling match with God, and he wins. He wins the wrestling match, and God promises to bless him. Obviously, God wrestled with one arm behind his back, okay? <laughs> so, but he, um, he wrestles with God. Where was I going with that? And he gets this blessing from God, but then at the end of his life, he is blessing his sons. He has 12 sons, and, uh, and um, one of them is Judah, the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe that the Messiah was going to come from. But he's blessing these sons, and one of his sons named Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, and uh, Jacob thought he was dead. His name was tr changed into Israel eventually, but... Uh, Jacob thinks he's dead and finally finds out that he's not dead. He's actually the ruler of Egypt, and they have this whole thing happen there. But when uh, Jacob is blessing his sons at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 49, in spite of the fact that he has been um, less than integrous throughout his lifetime, by this time he has come to really trust in God. We know that because listen to what he says about Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, his brothers selling him into slavery. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. Because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd of the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you. When he's saying your father's God, he's saying because of my God who helps you and blesses you. He is the one who sustained you. And so we see Jacob at the end of his life really having this turn to that he's come to know the God that he wrestled with and to trust the God that he wrestled with. And, and yet, imperfection once again. And then, then Judah, who was the son that was the, the, one, the, the head of the tribe from which the uh, Messiah would come, and that's prophesied here as well. When uh, Jacob prayed for him, he says this about Judah. Verses, chapter 48, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. He says, you're a lion's cub, O Judah. Did you ever hear of the line of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to, who dares to rouse him. And then he says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Who do you think that is? That's Jesus. He says, you're the kingly line. It's never going to be anything other than that until the one, the ultimate king comes, King Jesus. And so th this is all wrapped up 
in this genealogy. And when, when we read it, we need to realize that there's so much here. And for the, uh, the Jews that are reading this, they understand the promises. They understand the names. They recognize them. And so it would have had such a powerful impact upon their lives. But let's read it now, okay? And then we'll see what we do after that. This is gonna be Jesus. You're gonna say what? Um, let's just practice, okay? Would you all stand with me? Yeah. All right. I'm reading and I say Jesus. What do you say? Jesus. Then I say David. Jesus. Abraham. Jesus. Okay, now the powerful women here are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Uh, there's a woman, Bathsheba, who is not mentioned. Uh, that was David's biggest flaw. But... Um, it's the wife of Uriah. When I say the wife of Uriah, and then ultimately Mary, I want you to shout out, powerful woman, okay? Can you do that? All right, Mary. Woman. All right, so follow along as I read. I think this will be on the screen, starting in verse one. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus. I'm gonna try that again, okay? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus. The son of David. David. The son of Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Good, good, go, go. Isaac, the father of Jacob. If you recognize the name, clap. Someone just clapped twice. So if you recognize the name, you can clap twice, okay? Let's keep reading here. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the, you know, tell you what. <laughs> you go ahead and clap. I'm going to keep reading. If I hit one of the names, I'll pause. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was married, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed. <laughs> Why don't we just stop the clapping thing, okay? Doesn't seem to be working. Just clap in your mind, all right? Okay, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Boy, there's some great kings mentioned here, Uzziah, Hezekiah, uh, great guys. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, not a good king, I believe. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah, good king Josiah. Remember that song? And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, 
Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called, called Christ. All right, thanks, awesome. Have a seat. Okay, I have one more verse to read. See what you find here, okay? The, all the, everything's still in play. Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Okay, good, awesome. So, some say this, that the three sets of 14 would be six sevens. So, 14's two sevens, 14's two sevens, 14's two sevens. And that the author intends in the Jewish mind to be thinking of seven as the perfect number, and that Jesus is the seventh set of seven. And so, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but... Um, it, it, it could be true. So to the Jewish believers facing rejection, the temple being gone, for them to read this and to see, yes, Jesus is directly tied to David. Okay, I just wanted to see if you would or not. Okay. And, and then he was directly tied to Abraham as well would have encouraged their hearts tremendously and strengthened them. But um, when you look at all of this and, and you see the bottom line, what is the bottom line for all of this? What, it is story, the idea of story that, that this relates the story of Israel. And, and it brings us right up to the time of Jesus, launches Jesus into his next chapter of ministry before he launches us in, into the third chapter of the work of God in the ministry. But uh, when we look at this chapter, we look at this book, we're going to see that Jesus is a king. And these are just three takeaways, okay? Three takeaways. The first one is this. Jesus is king. He is a good king. And he's worthy of reorienting our lives around him. That's another way of saying following him. Because when you follow him, what that means is I reorient my life around him. I don't follow him when it's convenient for me to follow him or when I think he's right or when, when I like what he says. I reorient my whole life and my whole being and my perception of reality around him, my, my perception of right and wrong around him, my perception of value in life around him. And so he's good and he's worthy of that. He is the son of David and he is the king of Israel. Second, second takeaway is this. It's not what we do good for God, but what he has done and does for us that makes the difference. There are two things I didn't tell you before. When Abraham, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he went through the typical Middle Eastern covenant process, which was to slaughter animals as a sacrifice, split them in two, and to make a walkway with the half, half carcass of the animal here, half carcass there. 
so that then the two people making the covenant would walk between them together, all sorts of symbolism as to the blood and life and death, and, and we are together now, coming out the other side new, new covenant bond together. But when it came down to the time for that to happen, God put Abraham to sleep. And then it says God, in the form of a fiery ball, passed between the animals. What that means is God was the one who ratified the covenant without Abraham, meaning it was an unconditional covenant. Now, God's covenant with the nation of Israel was conditional. And you read about blessings and curses. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do that, you'll, you won't be. But this promise to Abraham was unconditional. He would be the father of a great nation that would bless the whole earth. Now, <clears throat> with David, <laughs> with David, David, <laughs> I love you. That's awesome. Keep at it. So when King You-Know-Who uh, <laughs> was secure in his kingship, he came to a point where he said, I'm going to build God a house. I have this great house. It's not fair. God needs a house. I'm going to build him a temple. Up till that time, the place of worship was a tent. It was the tabernacle that had come through, through the wilderness and out of Egypt with them. And the first thing that happens is the pro prophet uh, Nathan says, go ahead, God's with you. Do everything in your heart. Okay, so that night then God says, hey, Nathan, wait a second. You didn't ask me. You got that wrong. Go back and tell him, he's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. And so, he, by the way, prophets can be wrong. There's no record of them stoning Nathan to death for that, okay? And um, they, they can be wrong at times. But... He, uh, he says, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And I'm going to have one of your ancestors who's going to sit on the throne of this, this kingdom forever and forever. And that's why they called him the son of you-know-who. Okay? <laughs> and, but what the point there is, it's not so much what we do for God, but what he has done and does for us. That's the foundation it's not, if it depended on what I did for God, I'd be in deep trouble. It's what he has done for me. What Jesus did dying on the cross gives me new life, gives me a new heart, makes me a new person. And then what he does for me in leading me in life and in, in empowering us for life, that's what's the crucial thing. And so we need to rest on that and rely on that. Third thing is this. God works through imperfect people, and he so often produces good fruit out of really bad situations. You know, in Genesis 50, after Joseph's brothers, or after Joseph's father died, his brothers who had sold him into, uh, had kidnapped him and sold him into slavery, they come to him and they say, hey, uh, just remember, dad wanted you to be kind to us. Because they were afraid now that dad was gone that, that he, you know, he would, would take vengeance. And what he says to them is, he says, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And so even what is intended by others to be evil against us, and we get so caught up in that, well, he did that to hurt me, or she did that to hurt me, and I can't forgive them because they've never asked forgiveness, and they did that to hurt me. 
No, no, we, we don't look at that that way. If, G, if I'm following Jesus and I'm reorienting my life around him, then it, we bless those that persecute us. And we realize, oh, hey, you know, God, God can use that. I know you intended it for evil, but God's bigger than that. And God's made promises to me for my life that I'm, I'm resting in. And so <clears throat> we can find security in the midst of a, a crazy culture today that we live in, so, so much of our culture, not the entire culture, but, but so much is happening that, that could upset our hearts. And just like the Jews, when the temple's destroyed and they don't know where life is headed, they found solace and comfort in saying, King Jesus. That when they could say, he is king. And, and I'm, I'm gonna follow him. And you and I can find that as well. We can find ability to forgive others because God takes even things that were intended for evil and uses them for good. And, and we can find peace and strength as we are followers of Jesus Christ, following the king. That's what this whole epistle, this, this whole letter is all about. And next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about other key people from the uh, genealogies, and then we'll move right in, into the whole story. Right around Christmas time, we'll be moving into the Christmas story, the birth of Christ. So would you stand with me, please? And um, if, if you're on the prayer team, would you make your way down at this time? So um, if any of this speaks to you, if the idea, if, if there's someone you need to forgive, uh, come on down, just confess that, get prayer for it. If, if you've been torn up inside over some situation in life or the politics or the world situation, come on down, just get prayer for that. You'll get set free from that today. And if it's just you wanna follow Jesus, you, you realize yeah, he is king, I wanna follow him. And I've never made that decision to receive him into my heart and to, to really truly follow him, then make your way down here and tell one of the prayer team members that and they'll, they'll help you know how to do that, okay?